It's been a real honor to serve you this week with God's Word. I'm really grateful for your attention and how you have leaned in. I know it's been difficult at times. You all are tired beyond measure. Um, and I know many of you have come in here with a ton of wounds and trauma that you're working through, hurt at home, doubts, pains, confusions about God. Some of you have, have deep skepticism even now, and I'm just grateful that despite all of those things against you, you have uh, been here and present. I really appreciate that. And I, I want to say this, that as, as I was prepping for tonight, just praying and asking God, God, what's here that needs to not be here? And what is not here that needs to be here? And I felt like he, he led me to say that there's a few of you here. I'm not sure how many, but there's a few of you who were supposed to respond last night, but you resisted. Um, maybe you came back later or whatever, but you resisted and you missed the opportunity to stand up and declare Jesus Lord publicly. And, or maybe something has happened in the last you know, 24 hours and God's been working and you want that opportunity. At the end of this message, I want to give one more opportunity for that because I know that um, that's, it's just such a sweet, powerful thing. Christianity in relationship with Jesus is absolutely personal, but it's not private. There's aspects that are private, but it's not a private thing. It's, it, when you have a new king, you have a new allegiance that shouldn't be kept secret. And we want to celebrate with you. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity later on to just stand up. You don't have to come down here, but just declare Jesus is Lord. So I just want to give you a heads up so you can feel uncomfortable for the rest of the message thinking about that. <laughs> so <laughs> last night we left off with a new empire reigning. Cyrus is in the picture now. And eventually this king, uh, directed through the sovereign hand of God, you could see this in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah more, uh, God sends his people back to Israel. So they leave exile. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied that they would be in exile for 70 years, and after those 70 years are done, they are now sent back home. Daniel, maybe because he's too old, actually stays in Israel, but uh, not Israel, but in Babylon. But what we see is that even though God's people return back into the homeland and they're given a new temple, they're still, in a sense, in exile. Things are not as they ought to be. The, the Davidic line has been broken. Uh, King Jehoiakim, that, that whole line that I mentioned, the line of Judah, um, it, it's, it's not what it ought to be. And so they're, they're longing still for the Messiah to come to make all things right. And we see that ultimately with Jesus coming. But what they didn't see is that Jesus would come twice. First to take care of sins and then to take care of the results and sin for all, forever and death. And that's the second coming that we are all longing for. And so with that said, the people of Israel, even though they're back home, they're still in exile. Daniel is still in exile in one sense, even though he's physically there uh, and, and he's in a good position. They're in exile and so are we. And this book has been a really good book as a field guide to help us. How do we live resiliently? How do we survive and thrive in the midst of a Babylonian kind of world? But something that I need to make very, very clear that if you don't get this point that I'm about to make, you're going to be extremely disillusioned, disoriented when trials and sufferings come. Because until our King Jesus returns from uh, heaven and heaven comes down onto earth and makes all things new, Death destroyed, sin destroyed, all the results of sin eliminated, we, we will not be fully satisfied. 
We are going to be longing. We're going to be aching. There's going to be times of depression. There's going to be times of loneliness and emptiness. And if you don't get that and you fall into the kind of lie that the moment you become a Christian, everything goes away and you're fully satisfied all the time, you're going to be extremely confused and disillusioned because just within a week or two, you're going to feel deeply empty. And you should. Because until Jesus comes, we are away from our bridegroom. We are away from our king. You shouldn't be fully satisfied, right? Because he's not here. There's going to be waves of satisfaction and fillings and joy, but there's going to be lots of stretches where you're going to feel like you're in the wilderness. And if you don't know that, you're going to feel absolutely betrayed and disoriented. We are still in exiles. Colossians 1 says that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. But until our king returns here, it's not fully as it ought to be. So I really do appreciate songs that say, I'm fully satisfied, and you satisfy every desire, but that is not exactly fully true. In one sense, it could be true in a moment, but in, in the fullness, no. So know that. Know that you're going to have many trials of various kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you can be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. James chapter 1. Do not be surprised by the fiery trial that's going to come upon you. This will happen to you. You may experiencing, experience that the moment you come home, you open the doors of your home or your parents pick you up and you walk right back into brokenness and toxicity and it hits you in the face. You need to be prepared for that. I'm going to help you prepare for that. My best. So we're longing for our king to come back. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 8 through 12. <laughs> I am not giving you all that this book has. Please know that as, as deep as you feel like I went, I did not go deep this week. There is so much more to God's word. And I say that not to discourage you, but to say that to say this is something you can grow into, not something that you master like a little kid and you, you, you grow beyond it. That's, that's the great news about our God. He's so big and great that you could just keep growing into him. And even in eternity, we're going to continue to grow into him and learn more about him. So we're going to be in 8 through 12. We're going to be jumping around, so we're not going to go chronologically. Um, and, I also want, and, and I'm going to say to be in the beginning, if we don't want to know how to live faithfully in the light of all these pressures, we got to know our adversary. We have to know our adversary. And our adversary has been working in the be behind the scenes through different human agents and in the spirit and the attitudes of Babylon, but we're going to see it manifested in Daniel chapter 11. So turn to Daniel 11 if you can. Throughout the Bible, we see pictures of Christ coming throughout the Old Testament, little mini Christs that are imperfect human figures that point to the most perfect Christ. And the same goes on the other way. There are mini antichrists that point to the future antichrist, an embodiment of Satan. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And the moment I use the word antichrist, I understand that gets the heebie-jeebies going on. And if you ever watch Christian TV, you got these prophets out there saying, Putin's antichrist, Trump's antichrist, that guy's antichrist, that guy's antichrist, everybody's antichrist, right? And so it kind of has this bad rap, but I want to explain to you exactly what the antichrist is according to the Bible. Now, in Daniel chapter 11, we're talking about a, a ruler that is in the past for us, but would be in the future when Daniel's writing this. And his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. And behind Antiochus Epiphanes is this spirit of the Antichrist that's influencing him. Let me show you a passage actually in 1 John 4, 3 real quick before we go to Daniel 11. So 1 John 4, 3. 
But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming to the world and indeed is already here. So you don't need to look for the Antichrist to come up as a political figure, though that will happen one day. Um, but what happens is that there's an Antichrist spirit that's already active into the world. Uh, and another passage of 1 John talks about many Antichrists. So it's, it's plural, it's not just singular. Antichrist doesn't mean against Christ, like our English word anti means. Anti in Greek is actually instead of Christ instead of Christ. So don't think antichrist instead of Christ. That's what antichrist means. So the antichrist spirit is going to offer alternatives to Christ. Going to give you counterfeits. You remember we talked about that. There's constantly from the enemy going to be offered counterfeit worship, counterfeit kingdom, counterfeit values, counterfeit hell, all these kind of counterfeits that the enemy is going to influence through influencers, world leaders, celebrities, and all kinds of people, even family members at times, this Antichrist spirit is active, influencing, and shaping. And we're going to see the heart of the Antichrist in Daniel eleven thirty six. 36. This is going to give you some of the characteristics of the Antichrist and what he's about. So look at Daniel eleven thirty six. It's going to be on the screen. Would you read this out loud with me? The king will do as he pleases. Last time, come on. Okay, so there's a couple things you have to know. This is all determined. God is sovereign. This is all part of the big, grand, good plan of redemption. But what do you see characterizes this, this, this king, this false king? He's going to do as he wills, exalt himself, magnify himself over every god, speak astonishing things against the god of gods. This is Nebuchadnezzar all over again, because remember, this Antichrist spirit influences all kinds of people all over the world at all kinds of times, trying to stir up self-worship. See, Satan's goal is not to get you to worship Satan. He doesn't need that, though that would be fine for him. He just doesn't want you to worship Christ. He offers you to worship yourself instead. I've, I've told you guys this in prior years, but there, there, were, there is such a thing as a satanic Bible, and the, the number one command is, do what thou wilt. Do whatever you want. It's not worship Satan, but it's do what you want to do. That's, that's the mantra of the Babylonian spirit. That's the mantra of the Antichrist spirit. You can name it different things. It's all repackaged in the same heart that, would, that began in the Genesis, in, in Genesis, in the garden, in the desire to be like God. Do you see the temptations here? Eat this fruit, be like God. Later on, Babel, we will make a name for ourselves. Remember, the Bible is not what just happened, but what always happens. There is nothing new under the sun with, the, with demonic kind of influence, and the strategies are always the same. The spirit of the Antichrist, I know this is going to sound hocus pocus and heebie-jeebie or whatever you want to call it, but I want to be real with you. I always want to keep it... Um, I was about to say 100, but I'm, I'm too old to say that. I think I said that last night, though. It just slipped. The spirit of the Antichrist is always trying to disciple you, always trying to shape you. There is no neutrality. You're either being discipled into the conform, conforming into the image of Christ or this Antichrist attitude, always. 
one way or the other. There's no neutrality. And unless you're actively becoming like Christ, day after day, one degree of glory to the next, you are passively being shaped by the Antichrist spirit or the spirit of Babylon, the attitudes of Babylon, the heart of Babylon. Before we answer the question on how to resist this spirit, you've got to understand his primary weapon against you. Look at Daniel 11.32. Would you read this out loud? And I just want to ask one last time, just to honor God's word, would you just read out loud with some passion? And uh, for some of you guys are like, but just read God's word out loud. There's power in his word. So would you read this? He shall seduce with flattery. That's a good verse. Notice that one of his primary weapons is speech. If you look at the garden, remember what always happens. The serpent's primary weapon is deception. Deception. And remember what I said last night, why deception is so dangerous is because when you're deceived, you do not know it. It's not like, yeah, I'm deceived. No, no one thinks that way. If you know you're deceived, you're not actually fully deceived. The way the enemy primarily tries to destroy God's people is not brute force, but actually by changing your thinking, by flattery, by seducing, by transforming the way you think. Because if he can win the battle of your mind, he gets your life for free. Because what you believe will lead your actions. That's why the Greek word for repentance, metanoel, It's changing your thinking, Noel, your thinking. Because if he can get you into thinking, he can get you doing anything. And so it's a war of words, it's a war of deceptions, it's a war after your mind. And I know, oh man, I just, I hear it, I'm cringing inside, I feel like like some televangelist who's trying to freak you out, right? But like, this is true. (laughs) That's how the enemy works. He wants to shape the way you think and feel and believe. And he uses multiple different influences to do that, and they don't even know they're being influ- influencing you for those reasons. He doesn't want you to worship Satan. He wants you to adopt the attitudes of Satan. What is the attitude of Satan? Self-glory, selfishness, self-dependence, self-determination. You determine what tr- is true for you. You determine your identity. You pa- pave a way for your life. Do what's best for yourself. You know what's best for yourself. So how do we resist and thrive our adversary who is very good at his job, who's very good at seducing and very good at deceiving? He's had a lot of practice. Doesn't sleep. Look at the second half of verse 32 on the screen. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So what is the key for these people to resist this seducing, flattering spirit from the evil one? Knowing God. I said that from the very beginning. The very key to this this whole sermon series and this whole book is not for you to be like Daniel, but for you to know Daniel's God. And if you know Daniel's God intimately, that will propel you to live like Daniel. I am not special but I know the one who is. I am so, so humbled. I really am honored by how many of you have come up to me throughout this week and told me how helped you have been by this teaching. And you think I'm I'm not, I just know him who's special. I walk with him and then he rubs off on me and then I get to rub off on you. But it's him that you, you are helped by and drawn by. This is, it's the word that's the source. 
So my prayer for everyone here, because there's a lot of things. I can sit here for the next 17 hours easily. With it, I'll probably fall asleep. I, I collapse before, but I, I, I have that much content and more of just telling you strategies of how to grow and discipleship, all of these kinds of things. I could do that for you. But if, if I can get you to do one thing, everything else can come for free in time. And that is that you would give yourself to know God and enjoy him more than anyone or anything. Just give yourself for the rest of your life to know God and enjoy him more than anyone or anything. Know God more than anyone or anything and give yourself to knowing him intimately, not just intellectually, but knowing him intimately. Better than you know your favorite sports team or your favorite craft or hobby or your favorite, you name it, but him supreme more than anyone or anything. Unless you are daily bowing before this king in intimacy, you will bow before the world's ways. This, this is so urgent. I, I don't want to sound like an alarmist, but the times that we are living are moving increasingly towards persecution for Christians. And make no mistake, you don't want to be Western uh, thinking only. This has been happening globally for a long time. So don't think, oh, it's the end times just because America, God's chosen people, are now suffering. No, no, God's people have been suffering for generations throughout the world. So don't be so only American in your thinking. The church is way bigger than America. The church is ancient. It's not Western. It's not evangelical, even though I'm evangelical, if you know what I'm saying. It's not limited to what God's doing in America. But in our states, in the states, there's increasing persecution, and you're going to feel increasing pressure that you've already felt in greater ways. And if you don't know your God deeply, you will not stand firm. You will not stand in that moment. If you don't know God like this, you will collapse on that day, on that day of persecution or on that final day when the Antichrist is actually revealed and there's a great tribulation. You will bow that day because you've already been bowing every day. You follow me? So you're bowing every day when you choose his attitudes. And so on that day of persecution, on that day of choose this day whom you will serve, on that day when everything's on the line, and it's not just about being made fun of by your friends, but it could be life and death, what you've been bowing to daily will be manifested on that day. So how you do everything now is how you do everything. (laughs) If you cheat at dodgeball, (laughs) that is a reflection of what you do on that day. Just a random example. I'm just, just throughout there. I don't know where that came from. I, 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 that's partly a joke. But how you do everything is connected how you do everything. Your attitudes with cleanup for the cabin, the way you respond to your parents, how you do your grades, how you talk to others, how you treat people who are awkward or difficult to be around, that's connected to all of this into your heart. And so you are practicing on how to resist on that day of adversity, that great day of tribulation, right now. On if you can be forgiving to someone who slighted you, or if you can pursue someone who ghosted you. Those are all little moments of courage, moments of bowing or not. And so I, I want you to, to know this. We know from the book of Daniel like only like a few days of his life. The dude is like 80 by the time that book is over. And yet we hear about like five days of his life. 
That's pretty amazing. What does that mean? It means the day-to-day stuff that he was doing is mainly mundane and unseen. It's the secret life of prayer that no one sees. It's the daily acts of integrity that no one sees. All of that culminates in those massive epic moments that we read about. So I want to challenge you to commit yourself to the day-to-day, unseen, mundane things. If you want to be radical in great ways, you have to be radical in the mundane ways. But you have to know this resisting won't be pretty. You have to know it's going to be messy and difficult, and you must know this, or you're going to feel absolutely disoriented when it's difficult. Look at 11.35. Oh, man, I'm so bad with time. 11.35. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined. You see that purpose? So that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. There's a lot here, but look at the purpose behind the wise stumbling so that they may be refined. God is going to use these trials and sufferings to purify the church and make it white. Who are the wise? Well, according to the context, those who know God intimately. But what we see here that's hopeful for us and helpful is that we see that those who truly know God, the wise, what are they going to do? What's the first thing say? Come on, not your question. What does it say? Stumble. That's not a good thing. So what that tells us is that God's people are going to have times where they're going to get tripped up. Times that they're going to get in the bed with Antichrist spirit for a time. Times that they're going to forget who they are. They're going to forget their identity. There are times they're, they're going to be like Peter who says, I don't even know Jesus. But what, what is the difference? Those who are truly born again, who have the spirit of God in them, The Spirit of God, when He's inside of you, you are too uncomfortable in that state of sin, in that state of betrayal. And what happens over time, you're just so uncomfortable when the Holy Spirit wakens you up and brings you back. And some of you were awakened this week. Praise the Lord. You had the Holy Spirit in you. You were born again at a time, but you have forgotten Him. You walked away. You stumbled, and God brought you back. That's what He does. He pursued you because you're His, and He loves you. But you need to know that we're going to have times we're going to stumble. The Christian life of discipleship is not one of perfect upward elevator trajectory, but actually more like a, more like a roller coaster that moves upward. Actually, that doesn't work because elevator, roller coasters never just only go up, right? It's more like an escalator, you know? It's going up, but you're going to have moments of down, moments of trials, moments of pain. But you're overall, when you zoom out the trajectory of your life, it's, it's upwards and it's growing closer to Christ. So Hume, don't despise hardships. Don't pray for them, but don't despise them. They will come to an end one day. But until Jesus comes, they are potential gifts that God gives us and uses for our good. To draw us near to him, to expose the idols of our heart, to burn up the impurities in our heart. They're gifts, they're severe gifts, but they're gifts nonetheless. I want to share one more passage, Daniel 7, 21. We're going back now. As I watch, this horn, horn in Daniel, just to give you an interpretive key, represents a king, a leader. This horn was waging war against God's holy people and was defeating them. Hear that? Defeating them until the ancient one, (laughs) the most high, came and judged in favor of his holy people. Then the time arrived for the holy people to take over the kingdom. 
Remember, that stone is going to come from Daniel chapter 2. It's going to take over all the kingdoms and it will be the only one standing. But there will be a season where God's holy people will be defeated. So when trials and suffering comes and it looks like the church is dying or the church is losing, know that Jesus wins at the end. But know this too, so that when we're in the midst of that, you're not disoriented as if God is not true to his word and he's failed. He told us what's going to happen. And if you don't get this, you're going to be totally totally thrown off. We are still in exile. Now, I want to share with you eight, <laughs> eight steps to survive and thrive from the book of Daniel in random order, okay? They're not in order of importance. If you're, so if you're taking notes, eight steps, and I'm going to try to fly through them. <laughs> I've never been able to fly through anything, have I? <laughs> eight steps. Number one, be fluent in the word. Okay, let's look at chapter 9. Look at what Daniel's doing. Chapter 9, verse 2. During the first year of his reign, he's talking about Cyrus, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem may lie desolate for 70 years. Daniel was a man of the word. He's studying God's word over and over again. He's living in the book. I want to challenge you to know your Bible so well so well. It's not always easy to understand. So here's my challenge for you. Make a commitment to read it with others. I would encourage with your youth group to create even like a, a chat group or a message group and pick a plan, like whether it's group me or text or some sort of group that you guys, do. I don't know what kids do use these days. And pick a plan that you'll go through together where you guys can share insights Share things that you're learning, share things that are convicting, ask questions, and do it communi communally. The Bible was primarily written to be done communally, but we have primarily made it just individually. And no wonder it's so hard for some of you. It was meant to be written in a community so that if you didn't understand something, you can ask an older, godly, or godly saint who say, hey, what does that mean? They're like, oh, let me explain. But we often said, hey, here, here, take a Bible and then figure it out. <laughs> Start in numbers, you know? Just kidding, you know? And so, yeah, the people who read numbers laugh. All the other people who didn't read numbers are just quiet. <laughs> Don't start at numbers. So here's, here's a suggested plan. You do whatever your church thinks is best. I challenge you to start by reading through the whole New Testament. You can do it in six months or a year. Then do a two-year reading plan. And then after that, so after you read the New Testament once, once and the whole Bible in two years, read through the Bible once a year for the rest of your life. And every once in a while, change translations. I guarantee you, if you think you're too busy, I can sit down and find so many different things you could do less of and find time to be in God's word, to know God deeply. Do not be satisfied with not knowing your Bible. The, the beauty of the New Testament is that the, the Bible is unleashed to all God's people, not just priests. So you should know your Bible well. Do not lean on your pastor to be the only one knowing the Bible. He should actually, he, they should actually be equipping you to know your Bibles well. So that's, that's my challenge, my first challenge for you. If you struggle with the Bible you have, I encourage a New Living Translation. It's, it's often a lot more readable and helps. It's, it's a very good translation, and then you could branch off to other ones in the future. Here are some other things to, to, to look for when you study God's Word. We're still in the number one. First of all, the biggest question you should ask when you study the Bible is what does this tell me about God? What is God like? 
What is, who are you, God? What's your heart? What do you love? What do you not love? What are you going to do? What have you done? Ask that question as your primary. Don't, don't, do, do not, do not ask the question that most Christians ask in, this, in the West. What does this mean to me? Or what stuck out to me? Do not read with you as the center. You get to you after you get to him first. Because then you will only know yourself in light of him rightly. But often we go to the Bible first looking for us, what's relevant for me, and then we impose and then we shape God into our own image. Start with God. What does he say? Let me, let me challenge you to look for two things. There's a lot more to God, but two things. The bigness of God and the mercy or love of God. Let's start off with the bigness of God. Here's a passage from Daniel 2, 20 through 22. I'm going to go through it quick. Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has wisdom and power. He controls the course of world's events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in the darkness, though he is surrounded by light. If you think about that, just take that passage and sit on that for an hour. That's a lot. That God is massive, and it's also frightening at times and also sometimes offensive. But here's the thing. I'm really helped by the late Timothy J. Keller. This is one of my favorite quotes. Is it up there? Please be up there. Yes! Only if your God can outrage and challenge you will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Now, some of you come from fundamentalist background where they talk a lot about the holiness and the bigness of God, but what you need to focus also and meditate on is the mercy of God. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see your desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Daniel was appealing not on their righteousness, not because they're good, because God is great in mercy. One of my favorite books is called Gentle and Lowly, and there's just such a sweet quote I want to share with you from Dane Ortland. It's on the screen right now. Not once, listen carefully. I know this is, this is a lot, but tune in. I know this is a lot, especially for younger, those younger classmen, uh, underclassmen, what do they call them? Um, you, you guys can get this. I know you can. Listen, not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. Once again, the Bible is one long attempt to deconstruct our natural vision of who God actually is. God is full of mercy, abounding in mercy. So holding both the mercy and love of God as well as the greatness, the bigness, the sovereignty, the wrath, all of God is a very difficult thing. And most Christians lazily will just pick one or the other that fits their fancies or fits their cultural backgrounds, and you have to hold both together. The gospel marries together both the wrath of God and the love of God together. Do not separate them. That which God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. When I first started studying God's word when I was a Christian. I became a Christian 20 years today, remember? It's been 20 years of this. It's my Christian birthday, that's right, Vlad. When I was a younger Christian, I started reading the Bible for the first time, and I noticed, man, 
the God of the Bible doesn't sound like the God of the pulpit I usually hear. And one of the things that I did, and I recommend you do some sort of modification of this, is every time I read something about the character of God that didn't sit with me right, that just showed how big he was, bigger than I realized, I highlighted a certain color. And then every time it showed God's love or grace or steadfast love, his hesed, I highlighted a different color. And over time, as I studied God's word over and over again, I would see these different colors and help balance out my view of God to see him rightly and more robustly, rather than just shape him into whatever one I wanted him to be. Does that make sense? That's one of the reasons why you want to read the whole Bible regularly, because it will give you a more whole, holistic picture of who God is. But Daniel didn't just passively study the Bible, he let the Bible shape and affect him. Let's keep going. Number two, the other ones are faster, I think. Number two, Daniel had a lifestyle of repentance. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Even though Daniel was such a stud, he said this, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel. Daniel had a regular practice of praying three times a day, at least, but he also had a regular practice of confessing his sin. This is part of the normal Christian life. You don't just repent one day, you, you begin repenting one day and you never stop. You don't just give your life at, to Hume, to Jesus one time, you give your life every day. I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, right? Take up your cross daily. This is a daily reality of crucifying yourself, giving yourself to Jesus, confessing. Here's an acronym I'll give you if, if you want to know how to repent. It's called CARS. So this is, this is a, a helpful template because a lot of people don't know how to actually repent. They're like, oh, my bad, God. I'm not sure. Let me beat myself up in a penalty box for like two weeks until I feel like I'm, I'm sad enough and then maybe you accept me. But this is, this is a really helpful way to think through repentance. Very simple. Confess your sins. Be specific. Be thorough. Then accept his forgiveness. This is often skipped. You may Sometimes people jump to this and they skip C, but you need it come in order. Accept his forgiveness. He says in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. Let him be true to his word because he is. Receive forgiveness. If you do not let him forgive you and receive that and you keep beating yourself up with shame, that sin will actually come right back. It will be a festering wound. So receive that forgiveness. But first confess, specifically and thoroughly. Then repent. Repent is making active turning from it. Repentance includes confession, but does not end in confession. Make active steps to move away from that. So if you are like most teens in America and have some form of a porn addiction, you don't just say, my bad, God, thank you for forgiving me. You take steps. You talk to someone. You get strategies. If you have problem with relationships and they're toxic and they're destroying your relationship, you don't just say sorry. You make a plan. You repent. You turn actively from it. And then finally, you share with others. James chapter 5 says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. If you do not have that full circle confession and bring community involved, you will fall right back to that sin. You may think to yourself and lie to yourself, hey, God, I'll, I'll figure it out this time. I'll do it alone and I'll never do it again. But I guarantee you'll do it again. You bring others in the light so they can fight for you. They can bear your burdens. They can strengthen you. Number three, know your identity. We don't have time to dig in this, but when you study your Bible, you got to ask multiple questions. First, who is God? What does it tell me about God? But then you also want to ask yourself, who am I in light of God? What is my identity? You're a beloved child. You're loved. You're a servant. You're a missionary. These are different identities. 
that you want to grow in. It's not something you get overnight. It's something you grow in. You're an adopted child. These are all things that take a lifetime to grow into more and more. There's a book I'd recommend. Uh, it's very simple. It's 100 pages by Jerry Bridges. Recommend all of his books. It's called Who Am I? Identity in Christ. There's other books on Identity in Christ, but that's just one that came to my mind. Identity in Christ by Jerry Bridges. Worth reading. In addition to learning identity, you must learn more about the story you're in. So number four, be fluent in the story you are in. You have to be fluent in knowing the beginning of what went wrong in the garden, what is the solution, and how it's all going to end, and your part in the story. So there's a free resource online called multipliedmovement.com, made by one of my old professors, Mark Buving and Francis Chan. And um, if you go to that website, there's a free curriculum that you can watch videos with David Platt and Francis Chan teaching through. There's a whole section on the story of God, which is going through Genesis to Revelation. You need to be fluent in that full picture. Let's keep going. Number five, obey every word. The key to studying the Bible is not just knowing God intimately, but actually responding to him, and not just knowing and heaping up knowledge, but responding. Look at Daniel 9, 10. Did you read this out loud? Let's go. And have not obeyed the voice. When you read God's word, one of the final questions you have to ask is, how shall I now live in light of this? God's word calls us to do something, whether it's worship, confession, adoration, or repentance, or giving, or serving, or something. Respond to God's word. Obey every word. Number six, hear his voice and respond in prayer. Look at 9.3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, Daniel 9.3, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Um, I want to I show you something real quick because it's really important. So chapter 9, verse 3, Daniel is praying. But what did he just do in verse 2? Do you guys remember? Look at verse 2. What did he just do before he prayed? 9-2. He was in the Word. I hear Christians say all the time, I just want to hear God's voice. So I'm like, oh, so you don't read your Bible? And they're like, no, no, I mean, you know, you know what I mean, Sam, like, hear God's voice, right? God has started a conversation in his word, and then we respond back in prayer. So that's why when you see the Bible, throughout the Bible, you're, always, you're almost always going to see prayer and the word married together. We hear his voice, and he lends us his ear, and we respond back in prayer. And you can pray God's word too. So marry your times of prayer with God's word. Respond to what you just read as you listen to him, and I guarantee you do that more and more. You're going to hear his voice. He's already started the conversation. He welcomes you to enter into it. We see, remember, in Daniel 6, 10, Daniel prayed three times a day. It was his normal pattern. So I want to challenge you to pick a place, pick a time, pick a plan, and keep it like you would for any important friend that means the world to you. If anyone here has a best friend, and you have a planned date with them, you don't skip that date because something else comes on, right? You keep it. Pick a place, pick a time, pick a plan, and keep it. Maybe start small, build up, but I don't even want to say start small because people do that all the time. And when you start thinking one-minute devotions, five-minute devotions, you're still operating out of the framework of how do you fit God into your life rather than how do you fit your whole life around God. 
And so I don't really like when people say, just start small, just pray one minute a day. <laughs> if you start with that attitude, you're already starting with the attitude where you're still in the driver's seat and you're trying to fit God into your life. So I, I want to just say, start with 30 minutes a day. I mean, you watch a show for 30 minutes easily. Spend that much time on social media. Just start 30 minutes a day and see what God does as he builds your hunger. Number seven, church and friends. Daniel leaned on his friends. Prioritize friends who love Jesus, especially those who love him and know him more than you. We're all deeply influenced by friends, so you have to make a difficult decision on who you will allow yourself to be most influenced by. Get a band of brothers or sisters to be vulnerable with. Get permission to say hard things to each other. And then, from a place of strength, collectively love and care for friends who are lukewarm in their faith or who have want nothing to do with Jesus. We don't forget others. But don't throw yourself out there immediately because often we're not strong enough yet and we get easily influenced by them. But let me, let me tell you this. Do this with the guidance of mature mentors or leaders. Don't green light yourself. We often self-promote ourselves. I'm ready. No, maybe you're not. Don't self-promote. Ask others that know you. Leaders, hey, do you think I'm ready to enter in this relationship again with this friend or sister or, or you know, this person who's been really destructive in my past? Do you think I'm strong enough? Maybe you can come along with me so it's a community thing. Don't self-promote yourself. We usually think we're more mature than we are. And on top of good friends, give yourself to one healthy church. Follow the leaders, imitate them, be a delight, <laughs> listen to them. They're probably smarter than you. They probably know God more than you. Humble yourselves, follow these leaders, come up with a fight plan with them on how to grow when you get back. Go through the church process of baptism if you haven't been baptized yet. Um, talk to your church leaders about how they do baptism at your church. And then find someone to disciple you with an eye towards then discipling someone else in the future, near future. Find someone to disciple you with the eye towards you discipling soon too. I don't care if you're 15 or 16, you can make disciples. Get prepared with that mindset and then also serve in your church. Volunteer for the thing no one else wants to volunteer if they let you. <laughs> Number eight, I'm almost done. Lay aside weights. Back in chapter one, we see Daniel and his friends make difficult decisions. You remember I talked about the three R's regarding culture? Reject. Wait, would you say this? Okay, reject. What's another one? Redeem. And the final one? Redeem. Redeem. Close. <laughs> it's a good red word. Uh, no, that's a good R word. And you do want to respect. That's something I did talk about a lot. So that's, that's good, Declan. All right, so respect. No, dang it, you messed me up. <laughs> All right, reject, receive, redeem. So sometimes it's easy to reject and to receive, but then you have to be careful about what to redeem. And one of the things that I want to share with you that's important is, it's on the screen. Some things are right for others, but wrong for you, and some things are right for you and wrong for others. Oh, not up there? Did you guys catch that? This is difficult because typically when we think about things to do or not do, we, we usually ask the question, what's wrong with it? Is it a sin? Will I go to hell if I do it? But that's the wrong question. Some things are right for you and wrong for others, and then it's the opposite. Based off your background, your family history, your, your own wiring and your struggles and your, your makeup. And so a way to avoid legalism 
is to just know and be more self-aware of where are certain things that were good for you. Let me show a passage that's so important. I wish I could preach three sermons on right now. Hebrews 12, 1. <clears throat> Let's skip the first part. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Not just sin, but lay aside weights. What are the weights in your life that are not necessarily sinful, but often lead you to sin? As you go back home, don't ask yourself, what's wrong with it? Is it a sin? Ask yourself this, does it help me run? Does it help me run after Christ? Does it help me know God and love people better? Does it help me become more generous? Don't ask, is it right or wrong? That's a, that's a good question, but that's a low question. The next better question is, does it help me run? And that will help you distinguish and determine are different things that you need to maybe eliminate for a season in your life or forever. So maybe social media, you have to consider certain relationships, certain music, certain activities, certain sports, certain extracurricular things. I don't know your situation, but ask God and talk with other people who know you well together. Now, that was a lot. That was eight, right? Okay, so we're going to do this. We're going we're gonna to end. I'm going to pray for you guys in a second. And um, I want to share with you one last verse before, I, uh, in, in a minute. But I want to just give everyone a chance to just close your eyes for a second. I know there's just been a lot going on. And I said in the beginning of this message that I want to give an opportunity, one more opportunity for those who felt like they missed out last night, that they were too afraid, or maybe in the last 24 hours God did a work in your life. And you want to now joyfully... Because God is worth it. Because God is more valuable than your reputation, more valuable than all the fear, and he's bigger and more lovely than anything else, and that you want to stand up and declare that Jesus is Lord. So I don't know how many, but I feel like there's a few that the Holy Spirit impressed on me. So if, that you, if that's you, on the count of three, can you just stand up and yell out, Jesus is Lord, and then we'll all pray for you and celebrate. So on the count of three, one, two, three. All right, stay standing. All right, stay standing if you stood up. All right, if you stood up, those around uh, who know them, would you just put your hand on their shoulder? We want to pray for them now. We want to bless them, counselors. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for more your children coming home. Thank you that you're so merciful and patient with us. You are so much better than we deserve. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for an eternity with you. Thank you that you have washed our sin and our background as if we've never done it. And you treat us like sons and daughters. You treat us like Christ. And thank you that we're going to be with you forever. And these are our brothers and sisters forever. Thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for forgiveness. Protect these who just have put their trust in you this week, everyone, even yesterday. Keep us, Lord. Let me pray this blessing over you. So now I'm just shifting now to all of you. Father, I pray that you would help every one of us grow in greater love and knowledge and intimacy of you, and that would then in turn create courage and resilience, and that we would stand strong. And though we will stumble at times, we know we will. 
our hearts are prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love, yet we know that you are faithful to keep us. So Holy Spirit, would you fill us daily fresh? I pray that you would do a special anointing upon this group of campers, that they would just have a voracious hunger for your word, and you, Holy Spirit, would open up the word, and it would just fly off the pages and speak to the depths of their heart, that you would bring healing to trauma and wounds and doubts and lies that you would use this group, this special group. You know my prayers all week long. I pray that a special anointing over this group of students that would change a generation, that you would raise up missionaries and pastors and godly businessmen and women and mothers and fathers that would change a generation. I pray that you would mark these students for the gospel. Set them apart, holy to the Lord. Protect them from the lies of the evil and protect them from all of his, his schemes to destroy them, to steal, kill, and destroy. You've come to give them life and life abundantly. Set apart these students and these leaders and these pastors for your service. Protect them. And I pray as they go back home that their youth group would be so unified. All the cliques would just be, just be destroyed. That there would just be such unity and love and service and affection and humility. And that you would use them to bring, bring blessing to their churches and to their communities. And Father, again, I say, Lord, if there's anything I said this week that was not from your word, that wasn't of your heart, either in content or manner, would you correct me, help me grow, and help them never remember that? But everything that was from your word, from heaven, let it deeply shape us forever. In Jesus' name, amen.